Well, we changed clocks today, and that is an attempt to preserve sunlight. I'm fascinated by that. I was I I may have told you this before. This is that there's a there's a little got a little humming going on here. Um, that's just Zach's natural sound. Just an aura of humming that, that follows him wherever he goes. Um, I, I've run across this interesting story about a Norwegian city, a city in Norway by the name of Trumsau. It lies 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It has 40,000 inhabitants who live for two months out of the year without seeing the sun. It's called polar darkness. Their word for it is Merktiden, which roughly translates to murky time. It causes mentally, the mentally unstable to slip over the edge into a temporary state of profound mental disturbance. Even those who are emotionally healthy the rest of the year become un unaccountably tense, restless, fearful, and preoccupied with thoughts of death and suicide. It runs generally from about November the 25th to January the 21st. And for that eight-week period, the sun does not rise above their horizon, leaving the region in complete darkness except for a few minutes of gloomy twilight at high noon. The sheriff in that town, a man by the name of Newt Cruz, says people seem to be different during winter. They become edgy, complaining, and sour. They long for the light. They talk about the darkness. They even condemn it. They display much more of a I-couldn't-care-less attitude. A psychiatrist at the Asgard Mental Hospital by the name of Harold Repiscard says the whole city slows down. People's concentration and work capacity are reduced. They're always tired. The polar night has a tendency to bring out the least desirable elements in human behavior. Envy, jealousy, suspicion, egotism, and irritability all go off the charts. Murky time. Light and darkness is an image that Jesus often used, particularly as he was coming to the close of his public ministry. And, and, and for Jesus, he, he used those images figuratively because he, he was suggesting that there's a murky time spiritually in this moment of human history. I would say that is obvious and clear in our generation. We are spiritually in a murky time. Now, on a lighter note, um, I was just going to say quickly that, you know, my murky time did start last night because the World Series is over, and um, uh, but I'm saying this as a word of encouragement. It's 105 days until spring training, so just, just hold on, just hold on. But when Jesus uses this imagery, uh, he uses it in a way that that I think will, will surprise you. I mean, we understand light and dark, but, but Jesus talks about this in, in a different way, maybe than you might expect. 
Now let me remind you where we've been. Last week, uh, we saw in John chapter 12 that um, a group of Greek-speaking Gentiles, after having seen what Jesus did on Monday, remember, remember where we are. This is We're in the final week of the public ministry of Jesus. Sunday was the triumphal entry. On Monday, we know from other gospel writers that He came and cleared the court of the Gentiles in the temple. This is Tuesday, and now non-Jews, Gentiles, have come and asked permission to meet with Jesus. And Jesus uh, he gave him an opportunity to talk about how the nations will come to him and, and those kinds of things. And, and you remember he finished by saying, and, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Okay, well, that's where we stopped because I really wanted us to to highlight those words of Jesus. But but we stopped in the middle of a conversation. So I want to pick it up today and and we're going to read those verses uh, beginning in in John chapter 12, verse 32. We'll pick up with what Jesus said. And then I want you to see while there picture the scene, there are Greek speaking Gentiles who recognize that Jesus is something extraordinary and they're, they're trying to get an audience with Him. But Jesus is surrounded by Jews that have been hearing about Him, listening to His words, experiencing His miracles for three years now. And they don't seem to have picked up anything along the way. Alright, here's the conversation. John chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 32. Jesus is speaking and He says, And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now he was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd then answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, is to remain forever. How is it that you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, at this point, after three years, seriously, it's just a silly question. It's a refusal to acknowledge what has been made clear over and over and over again. But while I'm throwing rocks at, at people 2,000 years ago, the fact of the matter is there are people sitting in this room right now who absolutely know what's true. You've heard it over and over and over again. And yet if I ask you point blank, if you're a follower of Jesus, You'll say, ah, you know, I don't really understand enough. I don't really. Yes, you do. Let me tell you what's at stake for all of us today. Jesus said to them, verse 35, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Also, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus proclaimed, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs in their sight, they still were not believing in him. This happened so that the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, would be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart so that they will not see with their eyes and understand with their heart and be converted. And so I will not heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke about Him. Nevertheless, many, 
even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him so that they would not be excommunicated from the synagogue. For they loved the approval of people rather than the approval of God. Now Jesus cried out and said, The one who believes in me does not believe only in me, but also in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. If anyone hears my teachings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my teaching has one who judges him, the word which I spoke. That will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I want to talk to you, first of all, in this passage about the brief opportunity for salvation. Jesus starts, remember, we've got these Gentiles waiting for an audience with Jesus. They're hungry to know. They didn't know much, probably. They hadn't been exposed to Jesus as much. He may have been more of a, a, of a new figure in, in their line of sight. But Jesus is surrounded by Jews who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they knew who he was. They knew the events of his life and how they'd unfolded. They knew about the miracles. Everybody in Judea knew these things. And Jesus says, uh, he says, you have to, I have to be lifted up. And they, and they come back and they say, well, what are you, what are you talking about? The Messiah is going to be eternal. He's going to be, he's going to be immortal. What do you mean you're going to be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And Jesus says, listen, it's just a little while longer that the light is among you. Walk, this is the part I want you to see. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. I want to talk to you about that verse this morning. In fact, I want to, I want to camp there for a little while. We live in a world of darkness. But we have this idea that the darkness is somehow neutral and that we can make our way to the light anytime we want. I, I, I talk to people occasionally. Uh, I, I, I spoke to somebody uh, one time who I said, why don't you go to church? When I mean, your, your names are on the rolls, this wasn't here at Evergreen, but I said, your names are on the rolls. Why, why don't you go to church? And she said, you know what? We've had a pretty successful life. Um, successful careers. We've made a lot of money. Uh, we travel and, uh, and we go and, and do some things that, that we've always wanted to do. And, and she said, I'll just be real honest with you, Pastor. Uh, we don't need the church. And I said, yet. So here's the problem. We live with the illusion that we set the timetable and the agenda for our own lives. And the fact of the matter is, you don't know when your last breath is. You don't know what your next storm is. You don't have any control over the timing or the agenda of your life. 
What Jesus is, is, is telling us here is that he was speaking to people that had been watching him and listening to him and seeing what he did for three years. And he said, there is light in the middle of a dark world. But you're so casual about the darkness that you don't feel any urgency to grab a hold of the light. But what you don't understand is the light's not always going to be available to you. Now here's the thing that I want you to see. Jesus is clearly speaking of himself in terms of light, but there is a disturbing part of this sentence that, that, that really I haven't been able to get over it this week as, I, as I've, I've spent time in this passage. He says in verse 35, walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Spiritual darkness is not neutral. It's not just around us. It's not just out there. It's not something that we just avoid. He uses a, a, a word in Greek that has almost the image of a bird of prey behind it. Darkness is like a bird of prey circling, looking for something that he can capture. Darkness is not neutral. Darkness is here to overtake you. Darkness is hunting you. When I was 12 years old, 11 or 12, we took a family vacation to Carlsbad Caverns. And I remembered it was that was one of the it was one of the great vacations of my of my childhood. But but we go to Carlsbad Caverns, and you go through the tour. And and to this day, I mean, I don't know how many times in my life I've been to um, Silver Dollar City, but I have never gone through that cave tour that they have in those caves underneath that that amusement park. Because when I was 11 or 12, we went to Carlsbad Caverns. And it was cool. It was really cool. Right up until the minute that they said, okay, everybody stand still, don't move. And they turned off the lights. I mean, I had never been in a place where the darkness, literally, you couldn't see right here. I mean, it was absolute i'd never experienced that before and i tell you i'm not prone to panic attacks that's not a thing for me i'm 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 pretty easy going and and things don't really ruffle me too much but did i mention i haven't been in a cave since i was 11 years old <laughs> because those lights weren't out very long i'm sure they weren't out but just a few seconds but it felt like something was capturing me. I mean, the dark became physically tangible. You could touch it. That's the image that Jesus is painting here. Spiritual darkness is not just the present condition of your soul without Jesus. It is a reality that is in pursuit of you. Now, when we talk, when we take the com any conversation about spiritual darkness to its logical conclusion, we have to talk about hell. Now, here's the thing. I remember a lot of what we used to call hellfire and brimstone sermons when I was a kid. Seems like that was more common in church then. And, and, and in, in this generation, 
hell is not really a topic that gets much much attention. It doesn't it doesn't come up. It's not preached from the pulpit very often. But I want to I want to talk to you about it for just a minute because I, I want I want to try and help you understand something about what the Bible says about hell, and it's this. Well, let me start this way. The Bible has a lot to say about hell, but the Bible also has a lot to say about heaven. But let's start with heaven. The Apostle John writes the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is written with a lot of vivid imagery, powerful symbols, a lot of, um, uh, uh, of language that, that is really meant to describe the indescribable. What you have is John talking about what he saw when God pulled back the curtain and let him have a glimpse of heaven. And he says things like the gates. The gates were made out of precious gems like, like, like pearl. He says the streets. The streets were, were paved with gold. There was, a, there was a, a, a sea that was smooth as crystal glass. Now here's what you need to understand about heaven. John is not literally telling us that the streets of heaven are paved with gold or that the, the, the gates are, are actually carved out of giant pearls. What he's doing is he's exhausting his vocabulary trying to describe as best he can what is essentially indescribable. There are colors, I'm convinced, in heaven that we will recognize that we have never seen. I think, I think if, if you or I, we'd be in the same boat as John. If we were to get a glimpse of heaven, we would, be, we would feel like we were mute in trying to invent the language to describe what we had seen. We understand that that what John says about heaven is is inadequate. So that tells us that whatever we think about heaven, the reality is greater than the description. Okay, now having said that, let's talk about hell. The same principle applies. When the Bible talks about hell, it uses a lot of vivid language. It talks about weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It talks about, uh, it talks about a, a flame, a fire that, that never burns out. I don't know precisely what hell is going to be like, and frankly, it's not profitable to my mind to spend a whole lot of time trying to ponder that. But if I understand that everything I've ever read about heaven is just a pale shadow of the reality. Heaven is greater than what I can read about it. Then don't you understand that whatever, we underst whatever we've read in the Bible about hell, the reality is actually worse than the language will allow us to understand. One of the characteristics of hell that gets lost in the descriptions is that hell is a place of tangible, almost physically oppressive darkness. The idea that, that we can sort of keep Jesus at arm's length 
that we can sort of just get to Him when we get to Him. We can do the Christianity thing when we get around to it. When, we, when we've exhausted the other agenda that we want to live by. Why am I even bringing this up? Because Jesus said there's a darkness that is chasing you. It wants to overtake you. I would be a terrible person if I knew that and let you walk through the rest of your life singing that Billy Joel song that rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. There's no laughing in hell. If you're not a follower of Jesus, figuratively right now, there is fire licking at your hair and there is darkness approaching you with a desire to consume you. Spiritual darkness is not neutral. It is angry and it is hungry. Pastor, I, I, I get it, but I... I I'll get there when I get there. I'm not, I'm not ready for it. Listen, I understand that. I've had people tell me that in conversation over the years. I'm, uh, I'm just not ready. Picture it this way. You, you know those old movies where there's the, you know, <laughs> there's the, the lady on the top floor of the, of the building and the building's on fire and the police arrive, uh, the fire truck arrives and they, 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 break out this tarp and it's always got like a red circle in the middle like you know you're like like it's a, a game and, and you're supposed to you know once they're ready you're supposed to jump and they save you from the burning building you know to say that you're not ready to come to Jesus for whatever reason it's precisely like saying I'm that person I'm on the the fifth floor of a building the building is in flames it's going to come down any minute the firemen have arrived the tarp is there I see the red dot and there's they're yelling jump we've got you we've got you jump you'll be safe and looking out the window and going yeah I'm just not ready for that I'll get to it when I get to it you see, that's a moment when you have to have a, 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 a time of clarity that you say, listen, there's a fire that's no longer allowing me to determine the timing and the agenda of my life. I jump now because something else is determining that this is the moment. That's where we are in this culture. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your building is on fire. But the solution, the rescue is already here. It's already available. It's already arrived. We're pleading with you. At that moment, being saved from a disastrous end, literally the stupidest thing you can say is, well, I'm just not ready. I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm sorry. You don't get to make that call. I can find light whenever I want it. No, no, that's wrong. When you refuse the light, eventually it's withdrawn from you. Look at what Jesus says here in this passage. He says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, 
Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. There's a window of opportunity and you don't know when that window goes away. But look at the rest of that verse 36. These things Jesus proclaimed proclaimed, and he went away and hid himself from them. Why? Well, here's the reason. Because the cross is imminent. I mean, it's, it's right around the corner. Jesus has some final preparation to be done in his own mind. He has some final preparation to be done with that inner circle of disciples who follow him. He's been giving himself and being available to the crowds for three years. In John chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says, the invitation phase of my ministry is done. And he pulls back. Now, the invitation would reemerge, but not for a while. You see, he's going to have that week with his disciples. He's going to go to the cross. There's going to be Easter Sunday morning. He's going to spend 40 days with those who have followed him, who have believed in him. He's going to be strengthening them, explaining to them what's coming. He's going to tell them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They're going to go there and in prayer, they're going to wait 10 days. Then the Holy Spirit is going to come. And on that day, Peter will step up and he'll preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people will come into the church and begin to follow Jesus. But from John 12, 36 until the day of Pentecost the invitation opportunity was gone man I hope to see you next Sunday I hope to run into you at the grocery store I, I hope I hope things go fine in your life but let me tell you something I can't promise you that you'll get home from church this morning so just don't live with the lie that you'll do the Jesus thing when you get around to it. The building is on fire. The rescue is available. It's just waiting for you to understand your own situation. We're not going to cover these verses in great detail, but, but, but you'll see the, the next part of, of the outline that I've given you. I've called it Old and New Testaments Aligned. In verses 37 through 41, we have the Old Testament. There are two quotations here taken from the prophet Isaiah. And it's significant because the reason John quotes the book of Isaiah is because when these people don't follow Jesus, even though they've had all the opportunity, even though they've had all the information, even though all their questions have been answered, they don't follow Jesus. John says, but you know, God knew, God knew this was going to happen. He knew those that were going to that were going to follow. He knew those that weren't that weren't, and 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 he, and he said so in the prophets eight hundred years before the time of Jesus. That's what these verses are: simple affirmations that your final destiny it rests with you, but it is not a surprise to God. But then, if you go down to verse forty-four, the last part of this chapter is Jesus talking about himself. And what he's doing is he's basically explaining himself in alignment 
with these prophecies from the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament and the New Testament, he's, he's layering, them, layering them on top of each other to show that this is all part of the plan. This is perfectly designed. There's no surprise here. He says, listen, I, I, I didn't come to judge the world. It's not my point. I came to save the world. But you reject the invitation. What Jesus said about Himself will be the testimony that does stand as judge against you when that time comes. He said, I'm, I don't speak for myself. I just, I just say what the Father told me to deliver. You see, everything that Jesus did, everything that He said, it was all a part of this unfolding plan. He was sent by the Father to make the offer of salvation tangible and understandable. See, in the Old Testament, when they wanted to hear from God, man, He was a, he, he was a voice wrapped in lightning and thunder on the top of a mountain. They were scared to death to hear God speak. Well, God knew that if He was going to communicate His desire to be in relationship with people, He couldn't do it wrapped in thunder and lightning on the top of a mountain. So what did He do? He took on human flesh and He came and He spoke in a distinctive Palestinian accent so that we could understand Him. It's the same voice of the same God, only now it's unmistakable and it's easy to understand. That's what he's saying. He's laying all the Old Testament prophecies alongside his life and he's saying, see, all of this is working out exactly as, as, as planned. But by and large, the people didn't believe. Well, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. I've, I've skipped over two little verses that really have captured my imagination over the last few weeks as I've been in this passage in my study. I want you to understand the dangerous consequence of people pleasing. You see, the people have questioned, they're still questioning Jesus. Who is this Son of Man? They, it's a silly question because all of that's been answered. They already know. And the prophet said they're not going to believe. And, and John, John in, in verse 42 says nevertheless now nevertheless is a great word it's a word we should use more often nevertheless is a word that means despite what you've been told there's actually something else you need to consider they're not going to believe 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 nevertheless he says many even of the rulers i mean these are the these are the movers and the shakers these are not the, the, the peasants that, that they so despise. There, there are some in the Sanhedrin. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. Man, I would give anything if that was the end of the sentence and there was a period right there. Because you go, well, the prophet said they're not going to believe in Him, but, but, but clearly uh, the prophet misjudged the power of, uh, of Jesus' presence because, look, many believed Him. Even the influential people believed in Him. But it's not a period, it's a comma. Here's what it says. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him, but, oh, 
Lord Jesus, when you're talking about you and Jesus, when you're talking about salvation, there can't be a but in that sentence. They believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him so that they would not be excommunicated from the synagogue. Let me tell you what this means. We fool ourselves when we think like a moviegoer that we've adjusted our eyesight to the dimness of the lights in a theater and we think that that's all we need to really see well. Even those who believe in Jesus are often tempted to get just enough religion to be respectable, but not enough to be fanatical. I mean, we want to, we want to, we think that everything about that we've heard about Jesus is true. We think he's a good guy. We, 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 we think that, that, that it's all probably true, but, but, but we don't want anybody to think that we're weird. I mean, we can go to church occasionally. I mean, that's okay. I mean, you know, normal people do that, but, but, but we don't want to get crazy about this religion stuff. Why? Because it, it might hurt our reputation with the guys. It might, it might make us look out of step with the people that, that we really think are important. It says they believed on Him, but this falls short because they didn't have an everyday public confession. In fact, the verse actually says they believed in Him, but they were not confessing Him. Here's your Greek lesson for the day. That verb is in the perfect tense. When it says they were not confessing Him, it means they were living a lifestyle of continually not admitting any connection to Jesus Christ. Listen. A person who believes in his head but doesn't confess with his mouth or obey with his life. That person is not a Christian. It is a person who lives by oxymorons. Oxymorons like secret belief, silent faith, invisible commitment, hidden membership. What if you what if you're one of those people that say, Well, I, I'm I'm just neutral on the subject of religion. I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't I don't talk about those kinds of things. It makes people uncomfortable. You know, there was an Italian poet in the eleventh or twelfth century by the name of Dante. He lived in Florence, Italy, and and wrote uh, wrote incredible poetry, probably the most famous of which was the first volume of his trilogy. It was called the Inferno. And Dante's Inferno is a fanciful um, descent through the various circles of hell to the very bottom. In Dante's Inferno, there is a line that he writes in a much more poetic fashion, but essentially it teaches this lesson. He says, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in life chose to remain neutral. Now, why would that be? Why would God consider neutrality on the subject of faith and religion worse than hardened sin? Because the hardened sinner puts himself in hell. 
the neutral believer takes other people to hell with him. We don't have the privilege to withhold information about eternity. It's not okay. Well, I just don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. You don't want to make them uncomfortable in a conversation that may prevent them from being uncomfortable for the rest of eternity? Well, it's not my place to speak. It's not my privilege to tell other people what to do. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor who died in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. These words have been quoted many times in many places, but it comes from his journals that were recovered after the war. Niemöller said, in Germany they first came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, there was no one left to speak up. What is behind this secret faith, this silent witness? See, the Bible is very clear that it's not the belief in your head that makes you right with Jesus. It says that you have to believe, believe in your heart, that, that includes your mind, believe the facts about Jesus, but then you confess with your mouth. That is, you take private belief and you make public declaration. In other words, it is not possible to be a follower of Jesus in secret. It requires a willingness to take a stand, even and especially in a culture that may be hostile to that very thing. The problem is, for here, he gives us the explanation. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even if the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him so that they would not be excommunicated from the synagogue. For they loved the approval of people rather than the approval of God. What's behind this silent witness, this secret faith, is that we want to look good in the eyes of the world. We like it when we think they like us. That's why one church after another in this generation, we celebrate the right months and the right holidays and we hang the right flags outside of our buildings and, and we promote the right causes and we, and, 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 we, and we buy into whatever the trendy ideas are because we're hoping that the world will look at us and go, wow, look, they're just like us. We're not just like them. We can't be any more than light and darkness can peacefully coexist. Darkness rules or light wins. Those are the only options. Our choice is to pick a side. Who are we anyway to act as though we can expect God to be right with us while we 
keep him at an arm's distance like he's the crazy uncle that we don't want anybody to know we have. Godly men have never allowed themselves to consider what the world around them thought. Noah built an ark while being mocked for 120 years by his neighbors. Abraham left a far country out of paganism to follow a God whose name he didn't yet know. Ezekiel stood up and preached to a valley of dry bones. Joseph took his fiancée Mary and protected the baby that was in her womb in spite of the, the, the vicious gossip in the back alleys of Nazareth. Peter stood up and preached truth on Pentecost. Paul testified before a crazy man named Caesar who ruled the Roman Empire. Martin Luther struck at the foundations of a corrupt Roman Catholic church. John Wesley went from church to church preaching in the open fields because the churches wouldn't let him in their pulpits, and he denounced sin. Dwight Moody said, I'll preach the Bible whether it's popular or not. Billy Graham proclaimed Christ in the heart of communist Russia. I had the privilege this, this weekend, uh, along with Nick Dyer, we, we were invited to, to speak. We were the two speakers at a discipleship conference in Norman, Friday and Saturday. A room filled with pastors and church leaders and, and others. And we, we taught a conference on discipleship and what it means to, to be disciple makers and, and how, how that ought to happen in the church. By and large, the church has relegated discipleship to parachurch organizations. You know, the navigators are, are a great organization, but we wouldn't need the navigators if the church was being the church. And so we go and and we teach on discipleship Friday night and, and, and Saturday. And I had a guy come up to me and uh, he said, he said, I, he said, I was in, a, I, I was led to Christ by the navigators when I was in college decades ago. And he said, you sound like those guys did. He said, I, I've been in churches for years. And, and I don't hear anybody saying the things that you're saying. And then the conversation took a weird turn. I said, well, I appreciate you saying that. And then he, he paused and he goes, you know, one of these days, they're going to stone people like you. And it kind of caught me off guard. And he goes, and the ones picking up the stones... They're going to be inside the churches. Now, I have to admit, I've been chewing on that for about 24 hours. Because that was a kind of a weird thought. You know, we, we, we prayed today for the persecuted church and, and we support Voice, Voice of the Martyrs. And, and I've been in, in parts of the world where the church really is under serious persecution and, and we don't qualify. I mean, let me just say that right up front. But that's not to suggest that in our lifetimes we might not still get yet get there. 
And so knowing about this, this message today, I, I chewed on it some last night. And I, I thought, you know, there is a message here for people who don't follow Jesus. And that message is that your opportunity, you don't understand how brief it really is. You don't know how, how long you have to be able to respond to the light. But for those of us who call our, ourselves by the name of Christ, who, who, who claim Him, who, who, who want to live the life that He's called us to, those of us who want to chase Jesus, there's an issue in this, these verses for us too. Because it strikes me that, that whether you're on the road to hell or you're on the road to a mediocre Christian life. Both of those roads have the same billboards. They have signs along the side of the road that say, what will people think? What will people think? What will people think? If you're on the road to hell, you need to decide that what people think is not worth you staying on that road. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus. But if you are wearing the name of Jesus and claiming His, His, His name over your life, understand the devil's lost you for eternity. But his goal now has shifted to something else. He wants you to be mediocre and completely useless for the kingdom. And he uses, frankly, the same tool. What will people think? See, we even, in the way we say this, we say things like, well, you know, I don't want to be overly spiritual. You don't want to be overly spiritual? Follow that to its logical conclusion. I don't want to be overly spiritual means I'm content to be overly worldly. What we say matters. The way we think matters. These rulers were men in positions of tremendous influence, but they didn't confess Him because they didn't want to get kicked out of their positions of influence. They didn't want people to think that they were like that Jesus guy because the abuse heaped on Jesus might come at them. I'm here to tell you, if you're going to be a serious follower of Jesus, you need to make a decision up front because the abuse that went to Jesus is going to come to us. So here's the question. First of all, do you know Jesus? Because you don't want to pursue this line that, that, that leads to hell. I'm just telling you. And your opportunity, man. The building's on fire. It's time to jump because the rescue is here. But it's also not okay to say, I jumped and I was rescued. But now I'm sitting in the lawn chair just watching the rescue go be, be carried out by other people. You see, once you've been rescued, you were left here breathing in and out so that you could be on the rescue team for other people. 
So I don't want to talk about it. Because I don't want them to, I don't want them to think poorly of me. I don't want them to think I'm fanatical. I don't want them to think I'm crazy. Who do we think we are? When Jesus saved me, I've had my ups and downs. I've had my seasons that I wasn't walking with passion. But I got to tell you, somewhere along the way, God got a hold of me. I delivered a paper one time in a pastor's conference and the title of the paper was Confessions of a Reforming People Pleaser. Because that was me. I was a firstborn rule follower. I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to please my teachers. I wanted everybody to like me. You have no idea the transformation that God has made in my life from the kid who wanted to be liked by everybody to the man who now doesn't give a flying rip about awards or honors. I don't want to be on the mayor's commission to do blah, blah, blah. I don't want the governor to call. I don't care if the president invites me to the State of the Union. I don't care for any of that. It's not the approval of men. It's not the approval of people. Because somewhere God got a hold of me and I live with this awareness that I serve a master. And the only approval I'm looking for is when I close my eyes and I open them up again. And he says, you are a good and faithful servant. Well done. I've prepared a place for you. It's time to rest. That's all I want. I'd love to see this church grow, but not because I'm trying to build a kingdom. I don't care if the other pastors in town like me. But frankly, I don't really care if you like me. But I'm not worried about that because what I've discovered is that when you put people together who love Jesus and pursue truth, they will always be family. That's who we are. What will people think is the death knell to the effectiveness of your faith? If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, Our pastors are going to be here. You've seen them here. Who knows how many times you've been here. 
What if this is the last time you ever saw that? Won't you come and let us introduce you to Jesus? If you already know Jesus, then the question for you is a little bit of a different twist. It's this. Am I living a lifestyle of not publicly putting Him on display because I want to be liked? I want the world to think well of me? Listen, those people out in the world, they're not our enemies. They're people being chased by the darkness just like we were. But once you've been rescued, you get enlisted onto the rescue squad. And we got people that still need to get out of that burning building. What are you doing that's more important than that? What do you care what people think? Do you love the approval of men more than you love the approval of God? That's the question. And Jesus said they missed it because they couldn't see past the comfort zone that they were in in the moment to the glory or the terror that waits for all of us. Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you be all in and join the rescue squad? Because we're trying to save as many people as we can. We are, as Paul put it, ambassadors of reconciliation, pleading with men to be reconciled to God. Maybe you need to make your way to this altar and just kneel down and sort of renew your determination to be a man or a woman of God. To confess publicly what you believe mentally. Father, thank You so much. This is an extraordinary moment in time that flows out of an extraordinary passage of Your inspired Word. Father, I pray that in this moment, for those who don't know You personally, they know about You, but they're not in relationship with Jesus, may they be able to get past this concern about what everybody else will think. And for those who do know You, may we finally set aside our desire to be liked and just put ourselves on the line to make Jesus Lord on display in our lives. Father, stir among us. You are present in this place. Draw us to Yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.